Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Hey, I hope you're having a great week. You know, right now here in Nashville, it is raining cats and dogs, so to speak. We've had just an inordinate inordinate amount of rain and storming coming through. So I hope you're okay where you are. I know that we pay attention to those things. I mean, we have a tornado shelter here at our house when we did some remodeling a couple years ago. Had a big porch we were putting in, and instead of just backfilling it with lots of gravel, we put in a fiberglass tornado shelter. And uh, no, we've never been down in there. I mean, in other than just playing around with the grandkids, but we've never been in there. But we like knowing it's there. And there have been a couple times where we were ready to go, just kept watching the TV coverage. But boy, we've been having a lot of storms lately. But it be that as it may, I know you and I are people that carry our sunshine inside of us. So we're going to go right to some of the questions that people are submitting this week, where we take 48 minutes out of every week just to review questions that have been submitted by people just like you and me who are struggling with the realities of work life and careers out here, but questions that I think will have application for lots of us. Here's some of the things we're going to be covering today. How can I be a fertility consultant and stay true to my moral perspective? Now, you know, increasingly I get questions that are not just nuts and bolts, statistical analysis, business kind of questions, but, you know, and we, we don't do business as a separate component of who we are. Our business does reflect what we believe, what we value, what our opinions are, what our theological perspectives are. All those things are wrapped into how we do business or how we do a job. So legitimate questions, and we'll, we'll discover, we'll unpack that. Someone says, Dan, why do I feel like I'm mourning over my old job when I have a better job now? Is that normal? What printing services could I offer that would garner residual income? Here's a great one. Are the needs of former pastors primarily emotional survival or income related? Golly, we'll need to spend a little time on that one. Someone says, for the past several years, I've been stuck in the circle of doom, not being able to master anything. Why is that? And here's one. I hope we have time to get to this one by all means. Do you and Dave Ramsey ever debate your ideologies? Hey, this is Dave Ramsey. Hey, 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 Dave Ramsey. Now, Dave Ramsey, I don't need you button in here to give your own opinion. We know you've got one. (laughs) Well, I hope I have time to get to that. Do you and Dave Ramsey ever debate your ideologies? Ah, yes. Have a lot of fun with that, incidentally. Um, okay, let me go to the questions. We've got events coming up here. I got people asking a lot of questions about the next right to the bank. Right to the bank is a hot topic and increasingly so because every group that comes through right to the bank, I show them this growing stack of books of people who have been through previous right to the bank seminars and now they went out there and did it. And now they've got real books in their hands and it's delight to receive those I review lots of those. Got one coming up real quick that's going to be a book release here in Nashville. Randy Rudder, who was at one of our Right to the Bank conferences, just released, as a matter of fact, it's going to be released like in three days from now, a book, Chicken Soup for the Soul, for country music, which I just think is a 
great, great project. He simply approached Mark Victor Hansen, Jack Canfield, about the idea. They said, we're not taking any new ideas anymore, but we like this idea. So they did it anyway, and he's got 101 stories about people who wrote the songs, not the people who performed them, but the people who wrote the songs. What was the story behind writing the song? And they're just delightful. He's going to be doing a book release that I'm going to be going to. Please to be invited to that. It's going to be at ASCAP, one of the music licensing companies here in Nashville. And that's going to be on May 10th, I think it is. But anyway, you'd love to have those stories coming through. If you've got ideas for writing, put legs on it. You can do something with that. Of course, we've got the Coaching with Excellence events coming up real quick as well. Going to have big crowds for those, it looks like, people who want to use coaching, whether that's in finances and spiritual direction and career, life coaching, sports, health and fitness. I mean, the list goes on and on to different areas that people decide to specialize in. But how can you pull yourself out of the 95% of coaches who never make more than $40,000 a year? I mean, is that ridiculous when we're in an industry where we're telling people how to dream big, how to release the limits, how to accomplish big things? And most of Coaches don't make more than $40,000 a year. Give me a break. Well, we go through that in Coaching with Excellence, obviously. How can you get out of that? Put yourself in the 5% category without, you know, without breathing hard. I mean, my gosh, all you need is a plan for how you're going to do that. Well, here's our quotation for the day. comes from, well, I'll read it first. Then I'll tell you who it's from. Property is the fruit of labor. Property is desirable. It's a positive good in the world that some should be rich shows that others may become rich and hence is just encouragement to industry and enterprise. Let not him who is houseless pull down the house of another, but let him labor diligently and build one for himself. Thus, by example, assuming, assuring that his own shall be safe from violence when built. I get some of the terminology in there, let not him who is houseless pull down the house of another. Sounds like it could come out of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes written by Solomon. No, that was Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln says that some should be rich shows that others may be rich. Hence is encouragement to industry and enterprise. Well, I hope we continue to believe that philosophy that being rich is not bad, but that it serves as an encouragement others. We don't need to pull down those who are rich, destroy that, and spread it out so we all end up poor. No, doing well should be an encouragement to others. Abraham Lincoln. Well, Jeff says, thanks for your podcast. My wife is thinking about starting a business as a fertility consultant. Her USP is a technique that combines NFP model and Billings model. Question, what do you think about this in general? From a moral perspective, how do we differentiate so that we are not helping single people get pregnant? Thanks. Golly, interesting perspective here. Now, incidentally, fertility consultant, I mean, NFP is natural family planning. The Billings model is a model of tracking ovulation so you know when a lady is fertile. But they want to be a fertility consultant. How, from a moral perspective, do we differentiate so that we are not helping single people get pregnant? Doing business does involve more than just making money. I mean, obviously, it is, like I mentioned a minute ago, an expression of our values, beliefs, opinions. At the same time, I think we have to be careful about making judgments about each of our potential customers 
and how they'll use our product. I mean, if I'm selling bricks down here at the brickyard, I know without a doubt, somebody can buy a brick and they can build a beautiful house or they can build a, a cathedral or they can take a brick and use it to tie a note onto it and smash it through one of their enemies' front glass windows. But I don't need to make them fill out an affidavit, affidavit about how they're going to use that product in order to sell it with a clear conscience. But I used to sell cars. You've heard me talk about it years and years ago in Anaheim, California. Well, I had one guy who came in and bought a lot of cars from me. It was pretty clearly assumed that he was a drug dealer. He had mountains of cash, paid cash, never got any financing. I sold him probably five or six cars. Now, should I have questioned him on that? Said, hey, I'm not sure, you know, these cars are going to be used for honorable purposes. I really don't think it was my place to do that. Now, this opens up a gray area, certainly a can of worms. But I think that you could be a fertility consultant and do it with honor and integrity, embracing your moral perspective and not try to figure out every the 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 golly the lifestyle of everybody that you work with as a client i think you open up a bag of worms there you open yourself up to all kinds of liability i think you need to do what you do and do it honorably and trust the results will be used well okay monty says dan in the past you've recommended companies that can create business logos to help with branding could you mention some of the companies you have used or no others have used with success sure how do you get a company to create a logo or a, a book cover or a design there's lots of them some of them, the ones that, that i have used are 1-800-MyLogo.com, 99designs um, 99designs.com i believe is the one that we used for our current logo last year we got a new logo design for 48 days and we incidentally I, I like the process of having a lot of brains involved. If you hire a graphic designer to do your logo, you get basically one opinion. When you put it out to some of these companies that do this, you may get a whole lot of opinions back. I mean, companies, in addition to my, or 1-800-MyLogo.com, 99designs.com, the logo company, the logo CO.com, createlogodesign.com crowdspring is one that i really like guy kawasaki's new book enchantment he talks about how he used crowdspring to get the cover design and he got like 360 designs back in now here's here's the deal now this is why these companies also really anger a lot of people I mean, if you went to school for four years and you got your degree in graphic design and then you see a company like 48 Days puts out a logo contest on 99designs, I mean, one of the guys, one of the principals from CrowdSpring says the beauty of our site is that it doesn't matter if you have a degree from the Rhode Island School of Design or if you're a grandma in Tennessee with a bunch of free time and Adobe Illustrator. If the client likes the grandma's work better, then she's going to get the job. That's the thing that drives graphic designers crazy. They say that you shouldn't be able to, as a 13-year-old who understands design, 
be able to compete with somebody who spent four years in an expensive college degree. But I think it kind of begs the question. I mean, ultimately, the customer is going to be the judge of what they like. And so I like these kind of sites where you put it out there and a whole lot of people compete. Typically, on these kind of sites, you're going to get at least 100, 110 uh, responses back. I mean, if you put a reasonable price with it, we sometimes put things out there for $350 or something like that. So they're not big amounts of money, certainly for getting a quality product, but you'll get a lot of response at that. And then you can choose Uh, having a logo or design itself is very subjective. I mean, this is not something where we could grade the quality of a logo. Yes, there are still companies around that will start with a $25,000 retainer to develop your logo. I think that's bogus. I think it's ridiculous. I don't think there's any way in the world you can justify that much value, that much cost going into designing something. I mean, if, if frankly, I, if a grandma from Tennessee comes up with something that I like, then I like it. Let's use it. Um, now, you know, there, there's a lot of debate going around about that. But, yeah, there are certainly a lot of sites that you can use to get something that you're proud of. Sean is the one that's mourning over his old job. Sean says, I was a web designer at a corporation for two years. It was my dream job, but I didn't feel like I could reach my full potential. I was a small part of the machine. A week ago, I took an unbelievable position in a small business. Why do I feel like I'm mourning over my old job? Is it normal? Well, in some sense, Sean, any change is likely to make us second guess ourselves. You know, did I really do? Should I purchase that house? Should I have bought that car? Should I have taken this job? Should I started this business? But you have to back up. How did you arrive at the decision to move from your old job to this one? I mean, when you say that you didn't feel like you could reach your full potential, are you talking about professionally? There was no room for advancement or financially? There was a ceiling that you couldn't get beyond? I mean, certainly there were some things that caused you to look for and consider a new position. And if you went through that process, now the decision-making process that I recommend kind of is laid out like this. Number one, assess your current situation. I mean, that has a lot to do with starting a problem solving well. Assess your current situation. Number two, get the advice and opinion of other people, trusted advisors. Number three, list your options. Number four, research the best three or four ideas. Number five, choose the best one and act. Now, if you went through that process so that you did make a good decision, then don't second guess yourself. Hold your head high and knock it out of the park where you are. Now, if you made it decision impulsively or without doing any research or you you hated your job and gee somebody mentioned they're hiring down at abc company so you just went down there and took the first position you have reason to second guess but if you went through a really good decision making process then it's still natural that you may look over your shoulder a little bit you know in the first couple of weeks gee did i really make a good decision but don't second guess yourself once you have gone through a good decision making process James says, Dan, I've been in the printing industry for over 25 years and currently operate a business as a print broker. My clients order print jobs that are one-offs and are not repeatable. Do you have any suggestions for services that I can offer that would garner residual income? I'd like to earn money without chasing each job. Thank you. Interesting positioning. Now, James, you know, in, in the print industry, I mean, we have a broad spectrum of kinds of jobs, no question about it. And there's going to be a, a whole lot of things. I mean, if you do, 
letterhead and business card for a small company, they may not need anything more for three years. But you can also identify those things that are going to be repeated. Now, some will be kind of in between where there'll be one-offs. Here's an example. If you were doing uh, bulletins for a church, so every Sunday they needed 2,000 of those. Those are going to be one-offs, but they're going to need it each and every week. So you build in residual income, repeat income, even though you're doing new content week after week after week. That would be one example of that. But there's a whole lot of companies out there that are going to have print material that needs to be done again and again and again. I mean, real estate companies are going to be like that. Car dealers, they may have information that goes into every deal. You know, massive paperwork, mortgage companies. I mean, we just did a a closing on a piece of property, and I think it's embarrassing the quantity of paperwork that goes into just a standard real estate deal. I mean, it's, it's, it's as old school. I mean, they need to digitize that, have you sign once and you know, duplicate the signature across the forms and have you okay it or something. But having a mountain of paperwork is ridiculous and is so old school. I think they ought to be embarrassed about it. Uh, you might go after beginning authors. I mean, more and more authors, I mean, all the people we have coming through our Right to the Bank event understand that they're in the driver's seat. You don't have to get a publishing deal. You can get your own material printed your own book you can have it online this afternoon going through something like author solutions or lightning source or create space the company that well i mean it's just a division of amazon but create space where you can just put it up there and boom it's on amazon now the, that those kind of uh, imply print on demand which is a little different which means as people order your book they're going to be printed but you get to be well, well even an author like like i am I mean, I don't do print-on-demand. Now, we have a couple of products we have like that, like Joanne's books are print-on-demand, but most of my things, we print significant quantities of those. Rudder of the Day, which is just a compilation of some of my newsletter articles. I mean, the last run we did there was 10,000 copies. Now, when we sell through those, we're going to want to get those finished again. And we have a great relationship with our printer, Rich Printing, here locally in Nashville, you know, for doing those. But if you get accounts like that, those ought to be repeatable. I mean, you get somebody who all of a sudden has, I mean, you, you work with the author of The Shack, the little book that came out of nowhere, and all of a sudden the author had sold, you know, 400,000 copies. Man, they went through a whole bunch of printing cycles on that. And if you get connection with people like that where all of a sudden you have a home run, that could make your entire year just on the one relationship. Printing is changing. There's no question about it. But it doesn't mean it's a dead industry. It's just changing, and you can find these new niches of opportunity in there. Bob from Missouri says, I'm a former pastor. I was forced out of a church 20 years ago. I survived, built up a business, and I'm preparing to retire from it. I'd like to work with others currently going through the ex-church worker situation. You've mentioned coaching former pastors. Are their needs primarily emotional survival or income related? Bob, you have thrown up a hot, hot, hot potato here. And the answer to your questions, are their needs emotional or income? Yes, 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 yes. They are all of those and more. Emotional survival is obviously a biggie. Let me come back to that in a second and address the income needs first. There usually is always the immediate income piece. 
for somebody who has been fired as a pastor or a church administrator or whatever position they had. And yeah, I've had um, the opportunity of working with lots of people over the years who have lost their positions in church leadership. And the questions are immediate and they are traumatic. What you're working with is not just how can I replace my income, but there's also that sense, I thought this was my calling. I thought this was something unique that God purposed me for. How could that have been taken away? I had a young pastor who came up after a presentation that I did a couple months ago at a church where I talked about living out your dream, your calling and all that, and he came up afterward and said, what do you do when your calling has been taken away from you? And I, I didn't knew nothing about his situation, didn't know who he was. He was from another state. But anyway, I, he says, what do you do when your calling's been taken away from you? And I said, immediately, that's impossible. Nobody can take your calling. Now, somebody can take your job, but they can't take your calling. Calling continues. Now, let me unpack this just a little bit more. It's a significant question, and there've been there's a whole lot of people who are leaving church positions or nonprofit positions where they felt like there was a calling, a special call and purpose, vocation to be connected with that. Those are going away. We don't need to get into all the reasons, but there are a lot of reasons for that. We have about 2,000 pastors a month that are leaving their positions, either, either being forced out or leaving on their own choice. And we aren't turning out that many people out of seminary to ever fill those. I mean, there's a whole lot of transitions that are going on in church life in America and around the world. I had a client several years ago who had an affair. He had built a church up through three different building processes, a fairly large church, had an affair with a gal. When I met him, he was working at Walgreens, making seven fifty an hour. Came to me as a client, making seven fifty an hour. He thought that was his lot in life. I helped him identify that he had transferable skills. I mean, he was used to hiring, training, supervising employees. He had acted as general contractor for three different building processes they had gone through. He had some really marketable skills without any question. As soon as I helped him kind of frame that in a new way, we put together a resume. I still have his resume where it never identified him as having been a pastor, but it clearly identified his areas of competence, the skills that he had. He immediately had some new opportunities. I ran into him about a year later and he says, Dan, my wife and I, his new wife that he did marry the gal he had an affair with. He said, we're moving to North Carolina. I said, really, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to start a church. And oh, I know my heart just sank because I didn't think that was a good direction for him to go. He told me flat out he didn't know of any way that he could make money faster than being pastor of a church. Now, that may be unusual, but frankly, it is not that uncommon. I had a lunch this week with a pastor who lost his position in a church, very similar kind of situation. It got very muddy, very ugly, and very dysfunctional all the way through. He tried several other things, couldn't really do anything. He started another church. He knows he got back into it way too soon before he should have, but it was very appealing because he knows he can do that. These days, denominational titles don't mean much, so it doesn't matter if you got banned from a denomination or lost your credentials. It doesn't really matter. If you have the charisma to lead effectively, to wow people, 
and to motivate, exhort, the kind of things we would expect from somebody who's very effective in the pulpit. A lot of these guys simply do go back out and start a church again. Now, I'm not saying that's great. As a matter of fact, I have a whole lot of concerns about that. But here are some of the emotional challenges that people have. Sometimes it's an image challenge. I mean, I'm working with a pastor right now who lost his position, but uh, he has been very effective in doing some urban gardening. So he can teach people how to you know, create significant quantity of produce in a very small space. He still has the same leadership skills. He still has the same kind of personal charisma that he had. People love to come to seminars. He's making a lot of money in teaching people how to take care of the earth and how to do gardening. But he's struggling with, is this really what I'm going to do? And for some, in some sense, I am helping him kind of understand some of this is an image challenge. It's difficult to have to greet people in bib overalls, you know, on a flannel shirt when you used to have it on a three-piece suit, you know, or $1,000 suit and a tie. Sometimes it's just an image thing to kind of reframe it. But I'm helping him see that his opportunity to really connect with people at a real level, to help them respect the earth and to see God in nature. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that he can do. He can be the, the pastor in the pasture. I'm helping him kind of reframe this. But it's an emotional kind of switch for him to be able to feel good about seeing himself in this new role. Well, I'm, I'm going to go on. My my. my a lot of a lot of times what you need to do is help people understand that their calling can continue ministry can continue even if they never again stand on a pulpit on sunday i mean can they understand that calling remains the same even if the daily job changes and there are certainly a lot of ways to do that. I've told the story about the one of the art pieces that I have here in my office about a young gentleman who was a pastor. It was clear he was off track, even though he had gone to seminary and was ordained. He was off track. He is now a very well-known artist. His ministry continues in, and is much more authentic for him now than for him trying to perform in a position that did not fit him well. Anyway, a lot of issues there. And yes, I commend you on wanting to do what you're doing. The issues include everything, Bob. They are emotional. They are financial. They're situational. There are family issues to be dealt with, image issues to be dealt with, but uh, certainly a growing market, not that we want to take advantage of the misfortune that's going on there and the dysfunction, but uh, certainly there is a market there. And if you can be an understanding heart to help those people get through the challenges you have done, uh, that's certainly a worthy uh, way for you to find your own career and calling. Nathan, guy's name is Nathan Miller. I've got a brother named Nathan, Nathan Miller. Okay, from Fort Wayne, Indiana. It says, Dan, I have a website called squarecoach.com, a training blog for the internet platform squarespace.com. I found a guy who does wonderful Squarespace training, and I'd like to approach him about creating a DVD or online training video. How should I approach him? How should we structure the deal so that we both win? What you're describing is very doable. I mean, he has training for Squarespace training. And Squarespace is, you know, a product where you can integrate 
your website, your blog, your podcast, all the things that you're doing and the very smooth kind of integration. So he does training for that. You have a blog that addresses the same platform. Yeah, there's a natural kind of connection. Those are the kind of people that I like to link arms with. Those are not people that I immediately see as competitors and I don't want them to know about what I'm doing. I like to let those people know exactly what I'm doing and and look at how can we work together? How can we do something together? But I would make your working together product focused rather than a business partnership. I mean, that's very clear. I meant a very important distinction. So you could say that you want to do a DVD. Let's do this DVD series together. And it simply is that. It's a product that you do together. I mean, I have done several products with Nightingale Conant out of Chicago. I love the credibility of being connected with them. I love the connection. I mean, I've got products where my name is on there along with, you know, Bob Proctor and Tony Robbins and Brian Tracy and Zig Ziglar and Tony Alessandra and all. I love the connection. But I have no business relationship or shared partnership with a business in any way with Nightingale Conant. It's just simply products that we have together. Um, so our contract outlines very clearly what the revenue splits are. I am also able to purchase product directly at cost from them, which is part of our original agreement. And I would encourage you to do the same. So you do a product together. So you may get this guy's expertise, his name, credibility, and all of that, his agreement to promote this product out there. And you simply, excuse me, you simply give him the opportunity to purchase the product from you at production cost. He can sell it and make money, but you also have a product, a new product that you can offer. I mean, that would be one way to do it. So you don't have to just get married, you know, hook yourself together inextricably just because you do some kind of a product project together. And I would encourage you to keep it done in that way. Nick says, Dan, I've been recently turned down for two internal management openings. The first time I was told I wasn't ready. The second time I emphasized my skills rather than my experience. And they still said I'm not ready. Will another employer hire me to be a manager without prior management experience? Certainly. What you have to understand. Okay, you've been turned down twice for promotions within your company. What does that really say? on an objective scale. It's hard to tell. I mean, you need to get honest feedback and look at areas that they think are holding you back, but also understand every organization has its own unique corporate culture. There are things that happen only in that company. Don't ever assume that the same unique characteristics will be true every place else. I mean, if we look at companies like Walmart and Target and Kmart and Dollar General, they're all very similar businesses, but with very different corporate cultures. You know, there there may be some false belief about you and your current company. I mean, I've seen this happen a thousand times. Um, You came in late twice in one week and the rumor is going around that you have a drinking problem. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, but that may mean you're never going to get a promotion in that company, no matter how stellar your work is, no matter how qualified you are, no matter how many new degrees you get or how reliable and prompt you are, it just isn't going to happen. I mean, those, those things occur. We can't, I always tell people, let's look at what you can control and what you cannot control. You may not be able to control some of those things that happen internally in the company where you currently are, but you can control whether or not you're still there five years from now or five days from now, frankly. 
So I would encourage you to go ahead and do a job search. Show your areas of competence clearly on your resume and be prepared to discuss them. I mean, the world's a very big place out there. Just because your opportunities are limited in one company means very little about what your opportunities are in the overall marketplace. Good question. I I like that. I mean, sometimes we develop a microcosm and we think that our current reality reflects the entire world. You know, that's why so many people who have gone through unexpected and unwelcome changes these last couple of years in being so volatile have really discovered that it was a wake up call for something better. They thought that's all there was, but being forced to look outside of that, they realize there's a whole new world out there. So don't don't get too myopic. I mean, that's why even having a business that is very successful I mean, I don't want to just become incestuous in that I never talk to anybody except the people who, you know, work around here and I don't do anything except just, you know, think through my own lens. I want to be out there. I want to be going to workshops and seminars and other meetings and exhibitor trade shows and, you know, going to author conferences and things in New York. I mean, uh, that helps me keep a more realistic pulse on what my opportunities and options are. And it does exactly that as well. It opens my eyes to things that I may would never have thought of just on my own or with my own team. James says, I keep going in circles trying to create a career based on my passions, fitness, technology, and music. Every time I try to become an expert in one area, I change my mind and switch to the other area. So for the past several years, I've been stuck in this circle of doom, not being able to master anything. Why? Well, James, this is not what I would describe as a circle of doom. I mean, how about if you saw your situation as being a five-year-old in a candy store? Just unlimited possibilities. Now, yeah, you're going to have to choose one. You know, mom and dad said you can only get one. But all the options are great. Now, ultimately, you do need to make a decision. Yeah, otherwise, you're just going to keep looking at all that candy and never experience, you know, the explosion of sweetness in your mouth. But in your case, I'd say give yourself 30 days to, and go ahead and have all those options you talk about, 15 to 20 options. But then go through that decision-making process that I mentioned a little bit ago. Narrow down, choose one, and act. But now here's the follow-up to that. A lot of times when people have interests, so you've got an interest in fitness, technology, and music. So we narrow down. Now, for one thing, you could blend all three of those. I mean, I had a fitness center a few years ago. I mean, we used all kinds of current technology. We used technology to integrate the music so that we had the, the hottest thing going in town. I mean, you can combine fitness, technology, and music, have a unique application that perhaps nobody else is going to see, and it creates a unique niche for you that nobody else even can duplicate. So look for ways to use your multiple areas of interest, but bring them together in a way that gives you a real unique handle. All right, the other thing is, and this is really where I was going on that, but when you do choose one area, so you choose music, that doesn't mean that fitness is eliminated from your life. Fitness may continue to be a very meaningful hobby and an area to keep yourself sharp and alert and creative because of your involvement there, even though it does nothing to generate income for you. The other thing is, when we look at creating goals, 
these days, I try to have people develop a two to three year plan for a business or career so that you make a commitment to do it for that period of time. But things change. You change. If three years from now, you decide that you want to do something that's more fitness or technology focused rather than music, you can do that. It's not like when we make these kind of changes in today's workplace that you erase the hard work that you put into one career when you go into another one. Never. I mean, you segue, you transition where you use everything that you had used to make you successful in a given area and you move it right over into another area. When I work with doctors and dentists and attorneys and pastors who, for whatever reason, are deciding they want to change what they're doing at 48 years old, we don't just wipe the slate clean and start over like you would at 18 years old. My gosh, we're going to draw on all the wealth of experience and wisdom that you've accumulated because of what you did in those in that previous career. And we're going to transition that right into giving you really accelerated success in the new area because of what you'd done in the other. So don't think that this is a start stop kind of thing, or this is you're a ball on a pinball machine. You go this direction and boom, something happens. And now you're going in a totally different direction. No, this is more, God, I need a visual image for this, but this is like a stair-step process to success. Yes, you can change, but you continue an upward progression without feeling like you're derailed. Really, you ought to find your strongest areas of competence, regardless of what industry those are applied in today. So if you are really good with customer service and with budgeting and forecasting, those are things that could be true for you, whether the application was in fitness, technology, or music. So your strongest areas ought to stay consistent even if you change the area of focus and thus you continue your upward progression in terms of success. Okay, did I handle that one? Yeah, okay, yeah, we'll move on. Um, Jenny says, now this is an interesting one. I know I've had similar questions to this, but this, uh, cause it almost sounds familiar, but a few years ago, Jenny says a friend shared with me an idea she had for a product. It was a pretty great idea before she told me about it. She asked me to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which I gladly did all these years later. I know for a fact that she didn't end up taking her product idea anywhere. And I think it has real potential. It's a fantastic concept one I believe the pampered chef would buy into. I would like to try to develop the idea, get a prototype created, and work on launching the product. But I'm not sure if I'm still bound by the non-disclosure agreement I signed, and I would prefer not to alienate a friend. Is there a statute of limitations on the document I signed? And more importantly, is it ethically wrong for me to try to get this product to market without my friend's blessing? I don't want to make enemies, but I do want to make some money. Wow, what a great setup, and you've addressed several issues as you've laid that out, Jenny. Uh, typically, there is a three-year statute of limitations on invention non-disclosures. Now, that's a generality, but that should be clarified in your original agreement. I mean, non-disclosures are not forever. They do have statutes of limitations on there. It's like a non-compete. If you are a hairdresser in my salon and I have you sign a non-compete, it's going to have a limitation on there. Otherwise, it's totally non-enforceable. 
if my non-compete says that if you ever leave my shop, you can never be a hairdresser again in the state that we live in or in the world or in the universe. I mean, that's just not enforceable. It's going to have some qualifiers where it says for a three-year period after you leave my shop, you cannot be a hairdresser in an identifiable shop or business within a 10-mile radius for three years. That That's going to be a legitimate non-compete. Same thing is true of non-disclosures. Now, that being said, with what you described, this was a friend. It was a few years ago. You don't see how many. I would run it by the person. I'd run it up the flagpole. Ask them if they ever did anything with that idea that you've thought about it a couple of times since then. You thought it was a great idea at the time. Did they ever do anything? They say, nah, you know, I moved on with my life. I don't have time to screw with that. It pretty well lets you off the hook. Now, obviously, if it comes right down to it, you probably do have the right to go ahead and develop it anyway. Here's what I also suspect. I also suspect that what you're talking about would involve, if it were patentable at all, would involve a design patent, not a utility patent. We're probably talking about some kind of kitchen utensil that has a a unique design, not utility in that there's not electronics involved, there's not a chemical formula involved. Those are the kind of things that get a utility patent. This is probably a design patent. Those don't carry a whole lot of weight anyway. I mean, somebody, you could have a strong patent on something with a design patent and somebody design it with a little bit different hand, a little bit different shape, cut, and you really can't stop them. They go anyway. The people who make money with the kind of ideas that you're talking about are the people who sell it, the people who market it, not the person who designs it anyway. So there's not a whole lot of value in having the idea for the design. The value is in putting together a marketing plan. Who are you going to promote this to? I mean, it's like what I deal with with authors all the time. Oh, I've got this great book. It's never been written before. This is a story that's just going to knock the socks off anybody. Well, wonderful. For one thing, that's not true. You can't write about something that's never been written about. You can't find an idea that is so novel that you're the first one to write about it. But be that as it may, it doesn't matter if you do find something that has tremendous appeal And it's very timely. All those wonderful things lined up. The real issue, how are you going to sell it? How are you going to market it? Who's going to know about it? How are you going to price it, promote it, get out there? How are you going to find interviews so you can do radio and TV interviews every day for the next six months? I mean, those are the things that sell a product. So I would cover your bases with your friend. Ask about it. But, hey, go ahead and move on. If it's an idea you want to put together a plan on, I have people bring me ideas all the time and there's always that subtle kind of fear. Gee, if I tell Dan, you know, he's already got a a machine kind of in place. He could take this idea and run with it. I mean, I understand, I understand people's sensitivity to that, but I have people share ideas with me. I had a couple in here last week that they have an idea that I think is absolutely an out of the park success opportunity. Now, again, It's not just in having the technology. It doesn't require new technology. It requires repurposing a kind of fabric for a particular need that I think is a stellar idea. What I encourage them to do is trademark the product they're going to make. 
There's more power in that typically than there is in patenting the process. Trademark it so it becomes synonymous. So if people think, you know, Frisbee or Hula Hoop, they're using the brand name itself. And that gives you a lot of leverage. I encourage them to do that. I hope they make $10 trillion on it. I have zero interest in pursuing that idea. It's not a fit with my business. It would be a total redirection, an offshoot, just another thing. So even though I think the idea is gold, I have zero interest in doing it myself. And I'm not going to subtly give the idea to one of my kids on the side will develop it. Nah, I'm busy. I mean, and that's what you're going to find with most people. They're, they're busy with their lives. They're not looking for new things to suck up their time. Nah, not going to happen. You know, I've got, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go to one last question because, <laughs> because I, I mentioned it. There are some others in here that I can save for another day, but this is from Robert who says, Dan, do you and Dave Ramsey ever debate your ideologies? I find it cool that the both of you are such good friends, but there are some ideological differences in your messages. Dave Ramsey states that if you're in debt, go out and get a pizza delivery job and start delivering. But I've read that you had a devastating financial setback and you stated that you knew if you were to get a traditional job, you would never be able to pay the money back. So you were more creative and leveraged opportunities to get out of debt. I'm in debt and I'm following your example versus taking a traditional job. Being paid for my time is not the best method to generate income. Nonetheless, you both are inspirational to me and I thank you both. Well, I love the question because one of the things that I value about friendships with people like Dave Ramsey is that we do have differences. I mean, you've heard me talk about our Eagles group that um, Dave and I have on Wednesday mornings. It's been a valuable, valuable critical component of my growing my own business success over the last 10 years. I don't know how to pull that out and imagine how my life might have been different. I believe in that with all my heart. I'm currently writing some material, incidentally, on how to start your own mastermind group that goes beyond just a simple kind of one-page guidelines that, that I do have available that you're welcome to look at on the 48 Days Worksheets, I think. But one of the things I value about that group is that we do have differences on a whole lot of things. I mean, we differ ideologically. We differ in terms of, you know, personal preferences. You look at the parking lot, you'll see that we differ in preferences in vehicles. You walk in the room, you see that we differ in um, wardrobe styles, uh, hairstyles. We differ in theological issues. We differ in you know, sociological things, politically. Wow, I mean, we had a really heated discussion last week. This morning was a little calmer. Although we had a lot of differences, it was just calmer. But we had a really heated discussion. And I told the group last week with a lot of fervor that, you know, one of the things I value about the group is our diversity and that the last thing I wanted to do was to be in a group where we always had consensus on anything. I don't want that. So, yeah, I mean, Dave and I, now I'm not sure what you're referring to in terms of uh, differing ideologies. Actually, the example that you gave here, I think Dave would be very much, Dave and I would be very much in agreement on that. He says, if you're in debt, yeah, go out and get a pizza job. He says that just as an example of a one way to go out and get a little money. But if you uh, came up with a way to wash windows on your own 
and you could make 50 bucks an hour, believe me, Dave is going to encourage you to do that rather than just getting the pizza delivery job. He just uses that as an example of one way to add income and do it quickly without a long learning curve or startup time. But he's very open to and encourages the more creative, non-traditional ideas that I promote for ways to make money in bigger chunks than what you're likely to make by delivering pizzas. Now, beyond that, I mean, there, there are certainly some things. I mean, there are some things that Dave and I differ in in terms of uh, starting a business, as an example. I mean, if you get an opportunity to have the at-home delivery service that FedEx provides and they, it's your own business, but you need a truck to do that, but you have experience because you've been a UPS driver for 10 years, you're a perfect candidate for that, and all you need to do is get the truck. The truck is $12,000 and FedEx will finance it for you where they just take $375 a month out of your pay. I'm going to say, do that, do it today. I think that's a great fit. Dave is going to say, don't do it until you save up the $12,000 to pay cash for the truck. Now he is, you know, very black and white on some things like that, but that's not a real ideological difference that's significant. I don't think. And I think on most things, Dave and I are going to be very similar. But there are some of those very specific applications of financial principles that Dave is very black and white on. He's made a reputation for himself and an an amazing company and business. But when it comes right down to it, I mean, is Dave, does Dave belittle people who in our, God, maybe I shouldn't frame it quite like this but you know does does he suspect that maybe people even in our eagles group use credit cards all of us are business guys in there does he think that well we all have bought into his philosophy 100 percent, and none of us have a, a credit card well no he knows better than that i mean does he ostracize us does he stop the friendship because we have a credit card no not at all i mean don't i ever think i mean i would be a i mean don't ever think that Dave Ramsey makes those kind of judgment calls. He presents principles that he knows work and have seen work. But uh, those of us who are also friends with Dave certainly have the liberty to have other kind of philosophies, not only on money, but on some other areas as well. I think that makes rich friendships. That makes rich brainstorming groups, makes rich companies. I mean, you don't want in a company. I mean, I worked with a, a dental company one time. This was years ago, and I'll stop with this. But the guy was really frustrated because his company just never grew. It was just always the same. Well, I walked in. I mean, he is a clinician. So he's very high in C characteristics on the DISC. He's very analytical, detailed. This guy was, I mean, very boring, methodical. Nothing was lively. Nothing was fun. Everybody in his office was a clone of himself. So they were all exactly the same. Nothing mattered but just being accurate and correct. There was no fun. There was no ambiance. You know, the, I mean, they still had the same magazines in the waiting room that they had seven years ago. It's like, my gosh, you need some people that are different than you to liven this place up. And that's exactly what we did. And it did exactly that. It put some life to his business. People wanted to come there. They were attracted. And his business soared. He could still remain behind the scenes as the clinician, doing the kind of work that you want your dentist to do. But don't expect everybody else to be just like you in any situation, or you're going to have very limited possibilities oh me oh my we are out of time and i'm beyond my beyond my legal limit here for talking hey thanks for being part of this audience 
I love being having this privilege every week to come in, talk to you about the kind of things that we do here, knowing that you are not ordinary, you're not normal, you're weird, as Dave Ramsey would say. We're all weird if we're doing something significant at all. But I want to remind you to laugh readily, live fully, find or create work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. You can start making a difference today.